Welcome back to One Conversation, where one conversation can change a life. My name is JC Macias, and here with me is my lovely co-host, Lisa Piazza. We also have a very special guest here with us today, so definitely stay tuned. During this episode, we'll be discussing what is a sexual assault forensic exam with a sane nurse. On past episodes, we've discussed consent and what sexual assault is. But what we have not had a conversation on is what happens next after a sexual assault incident occurs and what a sexual assault forensic exam looks like. So during today's episode, we'll be having a very important conversation um, with an expert in the field. We know sexual assault happens. In fact, in every 68 seconds, another American is sexually assaulted. And so before we get started, I would love to give a disclaimer. So it is possible that something you hear during this episode could trigger, uh, could be triggering or could trigger an emotional response, whether or not you have experienced sexual assault yourself. If you need help or you have experienced sexual assault, just know that you are not alone. For confidential help and to be connected with a trained staff member from a sexual assault service provider in your area, you can contact 1-800-656-4763. If you are a local to South Lake Tahoe or in the Markleyville area, you can call our agency at our 24-hour crisis line, which is 530-544-4444. And just know too, all of our listeners out there, we will definitely link those numbers below, just in case uh, anyone really needed to utilize those numbers or just wanted to reach out, just so it's easily accessible. And so we have mentioned so many times in this podcast, although a lot of our conversations may be tough or difficult, uh, we just know it's really important sometimes to shed light on difficult subject matter in order to really empower our listeners with information. And so that's why we're really excited to have this conversation today to sort of demystify this whole process of this exam. Because again, we know, yeah, sexual assault is really common. It's something we have talked about. So we're really excited to bring kind of the back half of that process, right? If that does happen, what we can do and what that exam might be like. And so before we dive into today's interview, I am really excited to introduce our special speaker today, Ms. Debbie Robeson. Debbie, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I uh, am very passionate about uh, sexual assault nursing. I absolutely love it. And so any opportunity I have to talk about it, uh, to talk to people about what it entails, to talk about how to help people through the process, I am so happy to do that. That's awesome. And we are really excited to have you here today for that very reason. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with this podcast, but we really use this and we've said this I think every single episode, we use this as a platform to really empower our listeners, right? And so what more uh, an empowering conversation to have than this one? Because I think this is something that, yeah, a lot of people probably don't know what this process is like. Maybe are really uncomfortable to ask what this process is like and not knowing might even be a barrier, right? For mm -hmm. someone who might reach out and, and seek that, uh, that access or that medical help afterwards. So we are really excited. Uh, we're thrilled that you're excited to chat about this with us today. So before we jump into our more serious questions, we always start off with some fun ones, especially with these heavy subject matters. So our first fun question for you today, Debbie, before we dive in, and this is our every guest question we ask. If you could have lunch with anyone throughout time, past or present, fictional, non-fictional, 
who would it be and why? Wow, that's hard. Um, <laughs> it's a good one, yeah. I think yeah. that's why we ask everyone. <laughs> um, I honestly, I don't, um, I don't think I would want to have lunch with her, but I would want to work alongside Florence Nightingale um, just to just to work with her and see how she worked in that, you know, let's learn about washing our hands and being clean and keeping our, our areas clean so that our patients mm -hmm. don't get infections. Uh, would have loved to have been a part of that uh, seemingly... Uh, rational and who wouldn't have thought of that a long time ago. I know I love to read and in my books about midwives in the middle ages and so on, the ones that washed their hands and kept their areas clean had beautiful babies and people who didn't care. And they talk about the butcher doctors and all of those kind of things that just walked from room to room with their dirty hands and, and passing on infection and so on. Uh, just a fascinating seemingly, um, basic uh, premise or idea, hand washing and cleanliness. Um, I very much admire Barack and, and Obama and his and his wife. I think that they are amazing people and to sit and chat with them just because they're so funny, I think would be uh, an amazing lunch and probably full of humor and, and, uh, and fun stuff. So uh, yeah, Absolutely. that was a hard question. Go back to go. Let's talk about what, my, what I do. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we like to keep our guests on our toes. But they're great, yeah. they're great answers, though. You know, I think for Florence Nightingale, that's really cool. I mean, someone from your profession, right, the medical field, mm -hmm. I think, yeah, I mean, what a progressive individual. It, it is wild to think about that just hand washing and some of those simple, like, hygienic procedures were progressive at that time. But to think about that, right, and to really pick her brain being from that era, I think would be so cool. But also the Obamas, because I think I've oh, seen them in interviews and just the two of them interacting and laughing with one another, mm -hmm. like makes me laugh. So I think those are awesome answers because that would be really great lunch. Yes, they're definitely on my top five. So I agree, Debbie, I agree. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. So that was our first question, Debbie. I hope you're ready for our next question. And I this hope is it's a fun not as question. This is my favorite one. If you could have one superpower, what would it be and why? A superpower, huh? I'm so interested in mm -hmm. what, you know, a nurse is going to say in regards yeah. to this question. I think you as an individual, but definitely under your profession. Um, superpower. Gosh, you'd think things like, oh, kindness and compassion and things like that would not be superpowers. They should just be a part of who we are and who we strive to be. So I guess if I'm thinking superpower, that maybe time travel would be <laughs> a really nice option. Could I change things? What does that look like? I actually just read a book uh, about changing things, going to the past, going to the future, changing things and all the ripple effect of all of that, but also not to have to drive in traffic to be able to get somewhere I want to be and uh, not have to take the time to get there. Um, yeah, different eras, different how did we do things then kind of goes right mm -hmm. along with 
hanging out with Florence Nightingale. Um, how did this right. happen? What started this pathway? Uh, and then again, just not having to drive somewhere. <laughs> COVID, Practicality, COVID yeah, I love it. That's right. The COVID situation and webinars and mm. Zoom meetings. Mm. Oh my goodness. Um, even driving to, I love going to the meetings in, in South Lake Tahoe and the drive is beautiful, but just having that three hours a day handed back to me because I don't have to drive there. I can just right. attend a Zoom meeting. So yeah, I think probably I'd use time travel almost every single day. <laughs> love it. Beam me up, Scotty. <laughs> <laughs> love that so much. Yeah, the practicality of that is fantastic. But I also just think it's cool to think about, yeah, could I go back and and change something? Could I go back and make, you know, maybe a different imprint or, you know, completely reframe this whole moment in history, right? Maybe for the better. I think that's such a cool way to think about that. So thank you so much. And, you know, we kept it at two fun questions today. Uh, so, you know, no more curveballs for you. We'll jump into the, <laughs> the board matter at hand. So to kind of start us off with this conversation today, uh, I would love it if you could just provide us with a little bit of an overview of what your role is as a SANE nurse. And also, if you would not mind just explaining what SANE stands for, what that acronym stands for. So a, a SANE is a sexual assault nurse examiner. So if you say SANE nurse, then you're saying sexual assault nurse examiner nurse, uh, <laughs> which is, um, people don't think about that, but, uh, right. but it is, uh, it is, a, it's a thing. Um, another acronym that we're known by are SAFEs. So a sexual assault forensic examiner. So then you could say sexual assault forensic examiner nurse, but you know, it's the same thing as saying I'm a member of a SART, which is a sexual assault response team. A lot of people say SART team, sexual assault right. response team team. So it's just, it's just, uh, it's a part of the process and, and it is what it is. But sexual assault nurse examiners actually can fulfill multiple roles. We can, as a forensic examiner, we can do many things, sexual assault examinations, um, crime scene investigations, gunshot wound evaluations, death investigations. So a forensic examiner is just involved in the forensic world. And forensics, me, is just a part of any kind of a, a crime against a person. A sane sexual assault nurse examiner does sexual assault nurse examinations for people who have been sexually assaulted. Um, and of course, uh, forensic examiners, actually, I say sexual assault, forensic examiners do all of those things. Those are actually FNEs, forensic nurse examiners, that can do all of those things. But a sexual assault forensic examiner does sexual assault exams. And we, actually, we, are, we are divided uh, into adult, uh, adolescent, so saying A, uh, and then saying P, which is pediatric. So two different trainings two different roles. There's a lot of sexual assault nurse examiner, adult adolescents out there. There's a lot less sexual assault nurse examiner pediatrics out there. And I'm both. I'm a SANE A and a SANE P. I work at the Washoe County Child Advocacy Center. We are a dual program, so we see adults and children. And yes, while it might be a little disconcerting for adults to go to a child advocacy center for a sexual assault forensic examination, it is a dual purpose and we do take very good care of our adults. In the Child Advocacy Center, it's a multidisciplinary team approach to child sexual assault. We don't see, of course, there's a there's an overlap of physical and sexual assault in children, but our focus is on sexually abused children. 
And so we provide um, therapy, we provide interviews, we provide advocacy, all of those things for children who've been impacted by sexual assault. But we also see adults. And that is a bigger population for the examination process than the children because children don't typically uh, outcry as soon as adults do. And so we might not need to be doing forensic examinations in an acute manner on children, but our adults are always acute. And so it is the evidence collection medical examination for an adult. Um, I also am an FNE, so I am a forensic nurse examiner also. And uh, so I, uh, I, do, I do have capability for doing those, or I've learned how to do multiple different roles, but my main role is a sexual assault nurse examiner of adults and then less so for children. Wow. So you are, I mean, doing a lot <laughs> within your role, but that's, that's really incredible. And if I could just ask, how long have you had this role? I've been a nurse for 41 years. I graduated wow. 41 years ago uh, in just a couple of weeks. And sexual assault nurse examinations were done, or sexual assault examinations were done in emergency rooms for many, many years. So I feel like I've been participating in this type of a field since I started working as a nurse. In 1999, I patient came into the emergency room at St. Mary's where I was working. I'd been there um, uh, for quite some time and I volunteered to take the case because I always found these cases fascinating. I love the detective work of nursing in general. I don't think this is just primarily a, a sexual assault function. Uh, I feel like nursing is detective work in general. How is my patient? Why is my patient acting this way? Why do their labs look like this? Why are they, right. you know, why are they hurting here? So on and so forth. And so, of course, in sexual assault, can I collect evidence from the right area? Can I make sure that they're okay? Uh, can I help them mentally as well as physically? How can we provide the whole package for these people in a busy emergency room where they're not the priority, uh, the sicker patients are, they're not sick, they need evidence collection, but certainly their hearts are broken and we need to, we need to take care of that. And so I felt like those patients got shunted aside routinely because, well, we'll get to them as soon as we can. They're not as sick as somebody else is. And, and I always wanted to do the best I could for them. I would tell the doctor, because I couldn't do that part of the examination. This is what we need to do here. This is how you need to swab here. Make sure all of the evidence chain of custody was, was maintained. Made sure the police had what they needed. And so when I found out we didn't do those anymore, I said, wow, okay, where do I go? What do I do? And so as soon as I found that out, I talked to the nurse practitioner that ran that program and got hired and she trained me and she did an amazing job. But in that same year, there was some conflict in the program and so Washoe County took over the program. And of the nine nurses that were working in that program, only two of us followed and came to Washoe County, uh, oh, wow. the Washoe County run program and that was 22 years ago. And so I've been wow. with the program since. And then in 2011, our administrator was moved to a different role. And so I offered to take over the administration position. And so I've been doing that for the last 10 years. And so I just, I just go to meetings. I work admin. I write policy. I supervise the other nurses, uh, train. I'm pretty much the only trainer in Nevada for sexual assault nursing. Uh, Clark County has 
limited availability for nurses and they just said they're too busy to train. So um, UNR has a grant funded program where they pay nurses to learn how to be SANES and then they all come to the Child Advocacy Center and we train them there. And yeah, so it's a, it's a huge process and it's a huge role and it's fascinating. It is just yeah. fascinating. It's changed uh, a bit in 22 years, uh, it's expanded. And what we're learning now is that people are injured or hurt in ways that we didn't know they were before. So how do we evaluate that and how do we help them? And it's, it's, a, it's, it's a wonderful process. It's just incredible how long you've mm. been doing this for too. Absolutely. I mean, really to have someone that's just in this field for, for that long, right? And the things that you've seen and the things that you've learned. And um, yeah, I just think that's so incredible. So thank you for, for explaining that and starting us off. Yeah, and thank you for, I guess I'm thinking in advance for all the knowledge you're going yeah. to share because uh, I feel like I've, I've met sane nurses through some of the conferences we've been to and trainings and I have not met someone yet uh, as knowledgeable as you. And so I'm just super excited to have you here and have you share some of that knowledge. Oh, thank you. Absolutely. And so, Debbie, I know you mentioned forensic exams and you've mentioned a little bit about how that works, um, but you know, what is a forensic exam and when should it be considered? So a forensic exam should happen anytime anyone's been sexually assaulted. And you pointed out earlier that people don't know uh, about the examination and thank goodness for that. Uh, we actually are okay with people not knowing about it, but what would be nice is if people knew how to access it if they do need it. And mm -hmm. it's just tragic when they do. And, and we're so sorry. But we want to offer a process that will hopefully help them move forward when something awful has happened to them. So a forensic exam is simply a medical examination, a head to toe assessment, a history of what happened to them and then assessment. And then the forensic piece of it is just assessing their body in those areas that were contacted during the crime and making sure that they're okay. And then using Q-tips, um, that's, my, that's my magic wand, Q-tips. And I touch their bodies in areas where they were touched in hopes of collecting some kind of DNA evidence to corroborate and support their story. It's been fun sometimes. I, I occasionally do go to hospitals to do examinations if uh, the patient is medically unstable and can't come to the Child Advocacy Center or if they're on a legal hold because they're suicidal or homicidal or in, you know, in danger of, of hurting themselves, then we can't guarantee their safety at the CAC. And so I will go to the hospital and do those exams. And occasionally I'll have a nurse that'll wanna be there, which we're very happy to do and have, and wanna see the, how the process works because they think it, it's fascinating and, and all of those things, which I completely agree with. But I'll tell them, I'll just say, here's the magic and I'll hold up my Q-tips and say, this is it, you know? So everything else is nursing. And the way I describe to uh, people who might uh, be inquiring as to how, how this works, maybe in a jury trial, teaching a jury or something like that about the process, is nurses assess. Uh, so if somebody has a sore throat, they might look at their throat and swab them for strep. 
Well, it's the same thing in a sexual assault. Yeah, with a oral penetration, maybe a penis in the mouth or something like that. We're gonna look in their mouth, we're gonna assess for injury, and we're gonna swab them in the mouth. And so there's a correlation, a medical correlation for every forensic piece that we do. If they were touched on their breasts, then we're gonna swab their breasts. If they've you know, been kissed or licked on the neck, then we're gonna swab their neck. Uh, and then we're going to assess the genital area for injury uh, and, and look for DNA in that area also. DNA can't be seen, so we have to go based off a patient's history of how they were touched and swab in those areas and just hope for the best because we honestly can't see anything that we're collecting. And... Um, but more importantly, it's handing the patient back their, their control. It's getting a history of what happened. It's offering an apology for what happened to them, for acknowledging that what happened to them was hard or wrong or difficult or not their fault or however they need to be reassured. And then it's, uh, how can we check your body, make sure that you're okay? How can we collect this evidence to corroborate your, your history? And then to offer them STD medication to prevent uh, a disease, not only for them, but to assure them that their partner is going to be safe, that they're not going to give something to their partner based on uh, something that happened to them that was not with their consent. And so it's kind of, that again, like I said earlier, the ripple effect. How can we ha take care of you so that you can take care of the people that you love? Uh, it's offering, S, uh, sorry, um, pregnancy testing, not for what happened to them, because obviously a pregnancy test is not going to tell us if they got pregnant from the assault, but to say, okay, you're not pregnant, let's give you this medication safely or prevent a pregnancy from happening. So it's those, uh, it's that process. And then handing them back to your control. Yes, you're here for an examination. Yes, we want to touch your body. Yes, we want to take pictures of bruises. We want to take pictures of your genital area. But you have the right to refuse any part of this examination and supporting them in that refusal and saying, yes, you can ref refuse to have pictures taken. I'm going to do a really good job of documenting that uh, and drawing a picture instead of taking those pictures because it can be very intrusive uh, to take pictures. And genital areas, that's a whole different conflict in our minds. Do I want somebody taking pictures? Yes, I want to do everything I can for myself. But on the other hand, I don't want those pictures out there. And in this day and age of internet pornography and so on, and what happens if this gets out there? All of those things, how do we talk about it? How do we handle it? What can we do for you to make sure that you feel okay when you walk out of this room? That's incredible. So it's kind of a huge process, uh, not just come in, what happened? Let's swab your body. Have a nice day. Um, hope you feel better. You know, it's not like that at all. It's very trauma-informed. Uh, very much don't make the patient feel like they're a part of a crime scene. And that's another descriptor that I use in front of a jury. I don't stand a patient up against the wall and take pictures of their entire body. They are not, they're not a rock. They're a person. And we need to treat yeah. them as such. And they're a traumatized person. So let's be... Let's be aware and let's work on, on helping them to start moving forward in their, in their journey now for healing. Yeah, we love and that I just, so yeah. much.
And I just want to say um, I've been present, you know, during the time, during a few times where, you know, there is a sexual assault forensic exam being done. And I was just highly impressed by, you know, one, how trauma informed um, you were. And then two, just in regards to the act of consent, right, in mm -hmm. regards to you actively asking for consent in every step of the way. And so I was just highly impressed, um, was not expecting that the first time I was present. So, important. you know, just seeing all that support, yep, and all the empowerment you were also providing, uh, it even felt like, you know, you were almost doing part of what my role does, right, which is like mm -hmm. advocating and empowering and supporting and, you know, kind of really creating that safe environment around them. So I just want to say I was highly impressed. And I feel like when people think forensic exam, and may think of what you do, they may not know, you know, all the layers to it in regards to what you do and, you know, supporting them and really mm -hmm. kind of creating that safe environment, which I think is so important, especially like you mentioned, for someone that just experienced something so traumatic and invasive, right, um, for them to feel like, you know, this process in this process of receiving that support, right, and yeah. that kindness and that empathy. So just thank you so much for everything you do. Yeah, absolutely. It just feels so good to know that Debbie exists and she, she's out there, right? And I'm sure many survivors have been, you know, obviously traumatized for what they've gone through, but maybe greatly at ease going through that process because you do take those trauma-informed steps and do have that consideration with power and control and giving that back to them. So that is incredible. So our next question for you can a kit be completed if the survivor is unconscious or intoxicated perhaps at the time of their assault? Yes. So, um, so that very last sentence changed that whole question. <laughs> I was anticipating, can we do an exam on an unconscious person? And, um, or both. Yeah, both. Yes. And so, uh, absolutely. It's been very interesting this year seeing the, the amount of patients who come in with what we call the loss of awareness or when we initiate the loss of awareness protocol. And those mm -hmm. are those patients who don't know what happened to them. So yes, right. they were unconscious or they were um, some kind of unaware, uh, woke up in a situation that they didn't know what happened or they know something happened but they don't know what happened or they're missing time or just so many variables. And there is a protocol written for those patients who, again, it's called the loss of awareness where they just don't know what happened. And so then I can't do an examination based on their history because we don't know what happened to them. And so we follow then the loss of awareness protocol. We, we so I know I'm talking in a California podcast, uh, so it would be comfortable with the California process, but we do do exams for California folks, uh, people assaulted in California. We do exams for people assaulted in Nevada, and we do exams for the military, so the Department of Defense. But California does have a statewide loss of awareness protocol, and we follow that. And that is just collecting, of course, assessing their body, looking for any injuries, things like that but just collecting a standard set of swabs, and those are any orifice. So the mouth, we swab the neck, we swab the breasts, we swab the genital area, and then we swab the anal area. 
Uh, we like to think that if something happened anally, somebody would know that, but we don't. Uh, we don't know that at all. And um, people just don't know, and they just need reassurance that they're okay. And so, yes, if somebody was unconscious, but they have some reason to believe that something happened to them, then absolutely we can do that examination. We will talk to them about toxicology. It is a requirement in California if they were drinking. Well, first of all, if they think that they were drugged, that would automatically uh, initiate a toxicology draw, which is blood and urine. But also if they were drinking or doing drugs, either voluntarily or not, uh, before the assault or after the assault. It's California protocol that they would want us to, to collect toxicology. Now, of course, toxicology collects no matter what is in the body. It doesn't differentiate between what might have been there surreptitiously or what uh, was taken voluntarily. It's just everything that's in the person's body. So they have the right to refuse that if they want to. They absolutely are, are, are counseled that they can, they can decline that, that portion of the examination. But we will do examinations uh, on those folks that don't know if something happened, if they were unconscious or, or whatever. Sometimes there's the blackout where they don't know anything that happened, mm -hmm. but they seem to be awake and aware and so on of what is what is going on. But they really, when they come to, they don't remember anything. And yes, we can do exams for those folks. Now, I can say that if they want some kind of reassurance that something did or did not happen to them, that oftentimes I'm not able to tell them that. If they have a lot of injury, then we can say, oh yeah, something happened. You've got a lot of injury here in the absence of any other explanation for that injury. But the genital area is made for having sex. And if they're passed out unconscious and somebody has sex with them and they're not fighting or causing doing anything that might cause injury, then they might not have any injury and I can't tell them whether something happened to them or not. Right. Uh, same case if um, um, if I go to court and I talk about injury in a sexual assault or no injury, you know, consensual sex can cause injury, non-consensual sex can cause no injury, and so we have no way of differentiating between those two things. And so I might not be able to reassure somebody that something did or did not happen to them. In the past, we used to look under a microscope for sperm. But if a person wore a condom, I might not get DNA. I might not be able to see sperm. And we don't, because it's a whole process now of uh, certification and so on, we don't even look for sperm under a microscope. And we did find in the past, and, and not certainly not anything recently but in the past if we told uh, a law enforcement officer that we didn't see sperm then they might think oh well if you didn't see sperm then nothing happened and so we might not investigate mm. as well and so we kind of took that out of the process because yeah. it didn't really matter if somebody's had a vasectomy we're not going to find sperm we might right. find semen but we can't see semen once it you know it, it looks the same as vaginal fluid and so there's no way for us in a test in the examination room to know whether semen is present or not. So there's a lot of variables as to why we might not see something, but an assault certainly could have happened. And uh, so that's a difficult process when somebody's not sure if something happened. I feel like those are the more mentally traumatized people 
than the ones who do know what happened because the ones who don't know what happened don't know what to work through but the ones who do know what happened even if it was horrific Mm -hmm. it happened they know it happened now they can start working forward yeah and so those those are those are tough situations Absolutely. Yeah, thank imagine. you so much. Yeah, and thank you so much for elaborating on that. I think that's super important for our listeners to know. So, Debbie, in what time frame can a kit be completed after someone was sexually assaulted? What is the time frame or what does that look like? The time frame for a sexual assault examination in Washoe County, uh, which is where our exams are done, is seven days. Now, that's a random number. Um, We've been doing seven-day exams for a really long time, and it's still pretty iffy at seven days to get DNA. California, I think, collects up to five days out, but if somebody reports in California, even though their paperwork says five days, if the patient comes in today to us at day six or seven, we're still going to do the examination. There's not a lot of research out there uh, to say exactly how long uh, DNA is retained in the body. Of course, on the skin, it goes away a lot quicker. And so for that reason, because we don't collect evidence from kids inside their body, we're not going to do an exam probably about 72 hours out uh, on kids. And if they've taken a bath, after about 24 hours, there's not going to be anything there. Um, but it's really situation dependent, but on adults, we'll do exams up to seven days out because we're doing internal examinations. Mm-hmm. Now, that also being said, if somebody says that six or seven days ago or five days ago, somebody put their fingers in their vagina, I'm going to talk to them about the necessity of an examination because finger or touch DNA is very, um, there's just not a lot we can get from touch DNA and it's just dependent on whether the perpetrators a shedder are they do they have sweaty hands are we going to get DNA from sweat uh, from fluids on their body touching the other person's body and what makes that less scientifically uh, able to get is how often do they wash or clean up so think about the COVID situation and how now I ask every patient and every person that walks in my examination room to wash their hands before they sit down at the table. So the real stress now is on everybody washing their hands, which now is going to decrease our capabilities for getting touch DNA from anyone. If a person, I do strangulation evaluations, uh, we're finding now that more people have been strangulated during uh, uh, sexual assault, which we didn't realize before. Uh, I'll go ahead and swab a neck for for touch DNA in a strangulation process uh, or a strangulation allegation because the potential is there and we have been successful and once you've been successful in collecting DNA then you're you're going to be more you're going to want to do that more because you were successful once and so you always want to be successful but the chance of getting it is getting less because people are washing their hands. Also, the shedder status of a, of a perpetrator, that's just a, a personal thing. And so we don't know whether somebody's a shedder or not. And so we have to, you know, we collect those swabs regardless because we just don't know. There is a study out there done, um, a very good study done on um, consensual partner. They collected DNA up to seven, I'm sorry, 10 days out. 
another random number. And 67% uh, of the time, they were still getting positive DNA profiles mm -hmm. from oh, cervical wow. swabs. So we may find, especially as DNA changes and becomes more sensitive and things like that, that our mm -hmm. time frames might go out longer. But right now, uh, because we can show that at seven days we're still we're not getting DNA very often, that we're 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 not changing those time frames. So for your the purpose of your audience right now, uh, seven days out. Love that. I think that's it's great to know, right? Because I think some people might be afraid, thinking, well, I probably have to get there right away, right? If something mm -hmm. happens, well, I would have had to got to the hospital soon after, right? And maybe I missed my window. And so I think that's awesome because not only, you know, does it maybe um, challenge that if someone did have that misconception, they had to go right away, they maybe missed their time, but also, yeah, just kind of that accessibility, right? And kind of another small way, kind of giving some of the power to that person, right? They can maybe take the time or the day that they need before going and doing that, right? And so this is true. And also if they waited two or three days and think that now it's too late and I can't do anything, it's, you know, it's it's good knowledge for them to have that, oh, I can still do something, even yeah. though I've waited this amount of time. Um, showering is is okay. We understand that sometimes people just need to take a shower because yeah. people don't douche anymore. And so because I'm collecting those cervical swabs and that's where the, the, the semen is held the longest, that's, I, I reassure them that yes, I know you showered and yes, you might think that you ruined everything, but you mm -hmm. actually didn't. And so we can still take care of you. And the examination is not just about evidence collection. It's just like we talked about earlier. Because it's so much about reassurance and healing and that pathway, the examination can't just be about evidence collection. It's about all of those other things that are involved. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think, you know, one thing that we've noticed, right, and we always say, um, in regards to how people react after being sexually assaulted, there's no right or wrong, right? Everyone reacts differently. And so mm -hmm. some may be physically hurt, emotionally or emotionally drained, or just unsure on what to do next and need that time to process. And so they may not immediately go and seek help, right? Or they may not immediately contact the crisis line or disclose to someone. So I really, this question I think can be really helpful for those you know, who have experienced or, you know, if they ever get to a situation where they experience sexual assault or if they're just a support system to someone who just experienced mm -hmm. sexual assault to just know that there is, you know, this kind of seven day window. But we do have a few more questions for you, Debbie, um, in <laughs> regards to some details. So I know we could I feel like we could have this conversation forever, too. So, Debbie, just look out. We'll probably invite you back in the future. Definitely. <laughs> uh, so our next question for you, we thought this would be a great one, um, kind of also talking about barriers, right? Maybe ways we can kind of deconstruct some of those barriers. So our next question, do you have to report the sexual assault crime in order to have a forensic exam done? No, you do not. It's a, it's, it's a federal mandate, the Violence Against Women Act, that mandates that uh, people can have a sexual assault examination without cooperating with law enforcement. Um, awesome. The risk of of um, investigation, you lose a lot if you don't report to law enforcement, uh, but it certainly allows us to, to, st to stop time. We can collect that evidence, we can have it on hold, and then uh, that person can then make some decisions about how they want to process or proceed or whatever. The one thing people do need to know though, 
is that they can have the evidence collected, but it's not going to go to a crime lab unless they make a police report. So some people think if they have the examination, then their, their evidence will go to the lab, then they'll get some information, and then they can decide whether they want to go forth or not especially in those people who don't know what happened or uh, don't want to blame somebody if they're not sure that that happened and they don't want to get them in trouble if they actually didn't do anything. Um, but it, all it does is preserve a moment in time. It doesn't give you any information about what's in that kit or anything. Um, it doesn't go to a lab. It just simply gets stored and that's it. So good to know because yeah, we've talked so much about the police um, or reporting to the police, that being a huge barrier, right? Someone maybe not wanting to do that for a variety of reasons. So just knowing that there is that resource available, they can get that medical forensic exam done, and that is completely up to them whether or not that gets um, you know investigated or, or put through to the police at all. I think that's another really fantastic thing for our listeners to know about. So thank you Absolutely. so much. Just having that, I think just having that option and, you yeah. know, if they do need more time to process everything and figure out what they want to do next, this kind mm -hmm. of allows that, right? Where it's like, especially if they were concerned about possibly, you know, uh, DNA or finding out who did that, or, you know, just knowing more details in regards to the sexual assault, if for some reason they don't remember, or they don't know what happened. I think it's great just to know that you have this option where you can yeah. kind of press that pause button on that and you can process and figure out what it is that they want to do next. So thank you Absolutely. so much, Debbie. And then I have one more question for you. What should be avoided after a sexual assault incident that can affect the results of a forensic exam? You know, we always tell people that they shouldn't eat or drink or shower or bathe or wash or do anything after they've been sexually assaulted. And as I alluded to earlier, um, because we're collecting swabs from inside the body, I... I honestly, if the patient has showered, we're not going to give them a hard time about that. Eating and drinking, if they haven't been assaulted in their mouth, it's really fine if they eat or drink. There's nothing we're going to lose in that way. But also, if they were assaulted in their mouth, and it's been more than 12 hours, our natural salivation is going to wash out anything that might have been in there anyway. Nice. And so frequently, I know, JC, you've heard me say this before in our trainings, if, uh, if you're talking to a patient and they have a big old soda from McDonald's in their hands, don't take it away from them. I mean, it's a done deal. Let them have whatever it is they want. Uh, and, you know, just asking the simple question, did they put anything in your mouth? Then you can give them something to eat or drink. It's not going to change anything in the process. The one thing that takes everything away is douching. And a natural douche that women do monthly is have a period. So if somebody's been assaulted and then they start their period, um, that is the one thing I will not get DNA from those folks. And that in that study that I talked about earlier, um, where they they were still finding DNA after 10 days, once a period was happening, there's no DNA. That's our natural natural wow. way of washing out our vagina, starting out that whole flora fauna process and everything. If somebody's had a period, I'll still do evidence collection, but we're not going to get anything from that. So it, it's preferable it, no. if people don't wash, especially if there's been licking on the breasts or kissing or things like that. But if they have, it's not a done deal. But douching is bad. And then once they've started their period, 
Well, you know, all those other processes in the examination for reassurance and all of those things um, is still there, but we're not going to get into DNA. And we just kind of front load that with this, you know, that's, we're probably not going to get anything, but we're happy to do sure. the examination. And how about with clothes in case, you know, maybe they have changed their clothes or would like to change their clothes. Do you advise anything with that, their clothing that they may have had on at the time of the assaults? So we'll collect that if they want to bring it in with them, we'll, we'll take it. Uh, we of course sometimes have to negotiate about the clothing because it doesn't seem like anybody is ever assaulted in not be, and they're not wearing their favorite jeans or their favorite bra. Right. We do provide, if we collect clothing, we do provide brand new sweats, brand new underwear, brand new bras. We don't um, collect used clothing for our patients, anything like that. What they get is brand new and, and has never been worn by anybody that, that we know of anyway. Um, so I will, you know, whatever touched their body after the assault is what I want. And so sometimes people wake up naked and they, you know, then this right. is the clean clothes they put on. Do I really need all of those clothes? Not necessarily, but I want their underwear and I'll give them brand new underwear. They won't be as cute, but I will give them brand new underwear to wear instead. Sure. Um, so clothing is kind of a conversation process. What were you wearing? What did you put on after? What is going to give me the best source of DNA? And then we'll talk about, can I have this or not? Our homeless population, you know, they're, they put themselves in difficult situations all the time. And so what they're wearing may be the only thing they own. And um, if it's a nice heavy jacket or something like that, I, I can't take that. I, I you know, right. that's, that's, so we, we, it's a conversation that we have, but, but the underwear are always the thing. And then there's a lot of people who don't wear underwear. So then letting them know, like, I really need your jeans. And then the question is, do we get those back? And it's yes, you can ask for them back once your case is done. But Good if the know. lab gets those underwear or those jeans, if you weren't wearing underwear, they cut the crotch out. And mm. so it's, you don't want them back really. Uh, gotcha. But just another great thing. I'm just happy that that is mentioned. I'm happy that all of that is a discussion, right? So someone that's listening, if, you know, goodness forbid, every, anything ever like this ever happens to them, if they need to go about this process, they know, right? They know that they can shower if they really would like to take that shower, that you, know, you don't have to keep those clothes on, that you can bring them if you want to, but that's your choice as well. So I love just all of the options that are provided mm -hmm. throughout this process. Again, we know that something awful has happened to this person in order to kind of bring them to your doorstep, but I'm just so happy and appreciative to hear of all of the ways that you are so supportive and empowering and really just there to give their power and control back. So this has really been so awesome. I think even for me, I know JC has gone along with a lot of, um, you know, the SART exam. She's been present for a lot of them. I personally have not. And so for me, I learned, I actually learned a lot today. And I know there's a lot of listeners out there that this may have been a game changer, right? This may have really brought some information that could ultimately, um, yeah, really change the course of action, right? For them or someone that they love, just knowing this and knowing what this process is like. That way, again, you know, goodness forbid this ever happens, they know what to expect. And I think that's really so empowering. So we have one last little question actually for you. Uh, and it's just been such a pleasure to have you here. Again, we're gonna be bugging you because we would definitely wanna have you back in the future. Absolutely. So continue oh, this you. conversation. Um, so before we go, I'm actually personally curious about one question as well. I would love to know if you have 
any kind of a general estimate for how many of these exams you have done. It sounds like you have done so many, but I would love if maybe you had a number of how many exams you've done, but also if there is any maybe specific resources or just a message that you would like to share with our listeners today. So I personally have done more than 2,500 exams um, in the last 40, well, 22 years, really. I don't, I, I only count one other exam for that I was involved in prior to doing this. Um, wow. That was just a, a, a crazy, crazy story of, of a patient who did all the right stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, when I testify, I say I've done more than 2,500 exams in this many years. Resources wise, uh, crisis call centers are, and rape crisis centers are really the best place for people to call if something has happened to them. They, one, know how to talk to people who've been traumatized. They know the resources in that area. They know how to counsel people as to, you know, talk to police, don't talk to police. Uh, how can we help you? These are the where you can get examinations done. Go to the hospital, don't go to the hospital. All of that information, if there was one resource that I would say is most important for people to know, it's how do you call crisis call? Because no matter what happened to that person, they will get them all of the right information. Mm -hmm. Hospitals are difficult because some hospitals do exams, some hospitals don't. Um, they're busy. They're not necessarily uh, going to spend time that it, that a person needs that's been sexually assaulted. Uh, right. Might be wrong in what they offer. Some of our patients go in and want to know if they've been drugged and they do a drug screen, but they only check for seven different classes of, met, of drugs. I check for over 400. So just going someplace thinking you're going to the right place can have an impact on how you know, my process might work. And mm -hmm. so I feel like the, the, the crisis call areas or the, the advocacy programs in different areas are, are the pre, you know, primary place anybody should call when they've gone through an event like this and they'll get all the right information that way. I love that. And of course, listeners, we're going to have everything linked below is in terms of that national resource we shared earlier and our local resources here in Tahoe. So yeah, we encourage you to definitely check out those resources if anyone needs them. But Debbie, thank you so much. I think just to hear 25, over 2,500, I think that is so powerful for two reasons. I think that speaks to all of our listeners, to any survivors out there that obviously you're not alone, right? If you're someone that's gone through that process, or maybe you're someone that um, might need to go through that process in the future, just knowing that, yeah, you're, you're not alone, right? These, these kind of things happen. And, and then that unfortunate part of it, right? That, yeah, that's, it's such a common thing, right? For you to have done this many exams, within that, even within really that amount of time. Yeah, it's just, it's really incredible. And so, again, that's why we were so excited to have you here to really, again, demystify a lot of this process, um, really bring awareness, really just empower our listeners with what they can expect. And also, I think it was awesome just to uncover kind of like the, I feel like you're kind of like the Wizard of Oz in a way, right? We're like uncovering that person <laughs> that's going to be like on the other side, right? That no one really knew about before that's this. Right. And, it's, and it's this trauma-informed compassionate, empathetic, I mean, incredible uh, medical professional. All right. Well, listeners, as always, we'll be practicing some meditation as a way to practice some self-care after this very heavy but important conversation. 
So if you don't mind getting yourself into a comfortable position, we are going to do a meditation on body awareness. Go ahead and feel the connection between your body and the floor, whether your feet are on the ground or not. Notice each point that connects your body to the floor. Begin to feel the heaviness of the body sinking into the floor. Notice your breath. Feel your belly rise and fall. Feel the chest rise and fall as you're breathing. Begin to feel the lightness of the body as you bring awareness to your breath. Begin to feel your body relaxing. Your mind is completely aware. Your body starting to feel lighter and lighter with each breath. Now bring awareness to your toes. Envision your toes attached to your left foot. Put your feet together if possible. Bring awareness to both of your feet. Now bring some awareness to your neck, the back of the head, the forehead, the left eyebrow, the right eyebrow, the space in between the eyebrows. Bring awareness and bring relaxation to your muscles as you're breathing in and out. Feel the tightness of your body together. Relax and begin to feel lighter and lighter. Relax your body and bring awareness to those body muscles that may feel tight. And as you breathe in and out, continue to relax those muscles. Continue to take a deep breath in and out. If you have any thoughts running through your mind, let them go by like a cloud. Continue to take deep breaths in and out, relaxing your body and your muscles. Slowly begin to feel the awareness of your body. Begin to make small movements. Maybe you're rolling your neck. Maybe you're moving your fingers. Slowly begin to reawake. And when you're ready, open your eyes. I just about nodded off there. 
for like one second, I felt my head like tip forward. <laughs> yeah, that was awesome as usual, JC. Thank you so much for that, especially after this conversation today. As great as Debbie is, as you know, engaging as this conversation was, it was still a difficult one. So thank you for everyone at home, especially taking that time for yourself today after you know just participating, being a part of this discussion with us. So before we go, just another huge shout out to Debbie. We are so thankful to just have your time today, your expertise, for you to just really bring this education to our listeners. So Debbie, thank you so much for being a part of this today. Oh, thank you for having me. Again, I love talking about it. So any education I can do, I'm in. (laughs) Debbie will be back, everyone. Just watch out for our next episode because she will be back on the podcast at some point in the future. So thank you again for all of our listeners out there for being a part of this huge conversation with us today. Really appreciate you taking this time, you know, being a part of this difficult conversation in order to gain that knowledge maybe for yourself or hey, maybe you're gonna share this with someone else and that's gonna be ultimately life-changing for them. So thank you so much, we appreciate you all. We hope to have you back for our next conversation.